Well, I encourage you to open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. I was listening to a friend preach yesterday, and he said that uh, there was a former pastor of his who would encourage the people to take out their Bibles, take out their pens, and take out their notebooks, and get ready for the Word to be proclaimed, and I would encourage you to do the same. And uh, as we open up his word in Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be looking into Paul's prayer for those in the church at Colossae. And one of the greatest signs of a healthy local church is to look at its prayer life. The prayer life of a church body as a whole, as well as the individuals that make it up, communicate their level of spiritual maturity and growth in grace more than just about anything else. The fact that prayer is an important part of a believer in church's life isn't something that any believer would argue with. Everyone acknowledges that prayer is important, but sometimes, sometimes we can find it difficult to know how we ought to pray. This was certainly a concern of the disciples who asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. And it is only natural for believers, especially younger ones, at some point to feel inadequate with how we pray. I remember when I was home on break for my first year at college, I wanted to attend the weekly prayer meeting here at church. And I felt so intimidated praying in front of other believers who were so much wiser and and older than me. They were so much more experienced in prayer. And I would listen to them pray and it seemed like it was so natural and smooth for them as if they were just talking to the person they were sitting next to. And when I was in college, each year we would spend part of a semester in what we called the week of prayer, where classes were shut down for us to receive instruction on prayer, to have times of prayer dedicated for us uh, to, to pray as a group, to pray individually. Uh, It was some of the sweetest times of of that semester and of my college time. And I remember one particular chapel on the subject of prayer that uh, the the teacher was instructing us to not fall into a pattern of prayer where we were addressing God in the same way or we were following the same pattern, using the same words, the same points of address. He said, we don't want to follow into patterns of, of repetition. So he said he encouraged us to change it up, to have some variety, to, uh, to, to seek to exercise uh, the mind when we pray and not just fall into rote patterns of prayer where we just end up saying the same thing or addressing God the same way uh, every time. Well, I remember after that, my friends and I went to eat dinner in the cafeteria and we would sit down and one of us would pray for the meal. And so I volunteered and I was thinking, well, this is the time for me to apply what I've been challenged with. I'm going to do this. My normal custom was to pray, dear heavenly father. And so I said, well, I'm going to address him as dear Lord and start simple, right? Small baby steps. And uh, I was, (laughs) I, I was, struck with how deep some patterns and habits are. And as I began to pray, my habits took over. At which time my mind said, abort, remember, you're supposed to be doing something different. 
And out of my mouth came, dear heavenly Ford. And at that point, we stopped, and then everyone laughed. And I thought, while my earthly father would be very approving of this prayer, I don't know if it was my heavenly father's pleasure for me to address him in such a way. But I think God understood my heart, and I was, I'm confident in his patience in me. And this is a small example of how even it can be hard to do simple things like pray. That summer, when I was home from college, and I was here on a Wednesday night basis, praying with other men and women, I was instructed in how to pray. I was told that I had the habit of praying for God to just do this and just do that. God, I pray that you would just heal this person. Lord, I pray that you would just open this person's mind and heart to your word. I pray that you would just help this person to recover from this illness and so on and so forth. And after the prayer meeting, I remember being counseled saying, don't ever ask God just to do something. Ask him to do it. That we do not have to be beggars when we come before the Lord. We're called to come boldly before his throne. That no one should ask God just to do something. So I've carried that with me. That was a lesson that I learned. Sometimes it can be difficult to know what to pray for and how we are to pray for it. As children, if you, I was saved at a young age and I remember, I can't say I remember, I was told how I prayed was that I was thankful for everything. Thank you, God, for this meal. Thank you, God, for these gifts. Thank you, God, that this person broke their leg. There clearly was some work that needed to happen that I needed to go through. And then you go from there and your prayer list begins to look like a to-do list that you're handing over to God. God, help this person to get better. Help this person to do well on a test. Help this person to find a good job. Help this person to heal from their broken bones. And we take our desires to the Lord. Well, those are all good things for us to pray for, and we ought not to shy away from those things. But that is just scratching the surface of what God desires for us to bring to him. As I got older and wiser in the faith, and I'm sure you have learned the same lesson, you come to understand that it isn't always God's will that someone finds a better job. It isn't always God's will for someone to excel academically. It isn't always God's will for someone to get better and to recover from an illness or disease. Sometimes God's will is for someone to go through a period of difficulty and suffering. How do we pray for our fellow believer? How do we pray for each other knowing that sometimes God will, God's will is that we suffer? Thankfully, Paul provides many different examples for us to learn from and to follow in many of his epistles. Paul takes points at, in different epistles like 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1, Ephesians 1, Philippians 1, Colossians 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, Philemon, and many other parts of different epistles and books that he has written. Paul takes time to pray for those to whom he is writing. This morning, we're going to dive into 
Colossians chapter 1 to see how Paul prays for the believers in Colossae. Now, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul is rejoicing in what Epaphras has reported to him concerning the believers in Colossae. It is believed that the believers, the church met in Epaphras' home, that he was one of the founders of the church in Colossae, and Paul is currently in prison, and Epaphras found his way to Rome to minister and reach out to Paul and to bring to him an update as to what's been going on in the church of Colossae since it was founded. Paul never went to Colossae up to this point. He had not been there, but he had a specific and a special relationship with some of the believers who were there. So Epaphras brings to him an update as to how the believers are getting along, how they are bearing fruit and growing, as we see in verse 6. Upon hearing about the growth in the believers in Colossae, Paul has not ceased to pray on their behalf. Paul then tells them exactly how he has prayed for them, laying out for them the request that he brings before the Lord. And we would do well to study and pay attention to these things and let it instruct us as to how we ought to be praying for each other. Paul brings forward two prayer requests for the persevering believers in Colossae. We're going to look at those two prayer requests that Paul has, and then we're going to look more in-depthly into the second prayer request and how that is borne out in their lives. So the first prayer request that Paul has for the believers of Colossae is that they would grow in a knowledge of the will of God. That they would grow in a knowledge of the will of God. And we see that in verse 9. Paul says, And so from the day we heard, that is the update from Epaphras, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with a knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The first thing he says, I'm praying for you. The first thing that I appeal and ask the Lord for is that you have a knowledge of the will of God. I desire that you be filled with the knowledge of his will. Paul's desire was to see these precious believers grow in their knowledge of God and what pleased him, what was his will. This knowledge, the word that Paul uses here is epigonosco. And gnosko or, uh, is probably a word that you're familiar with. It's uh, to know something. Uh, gnosis, what we, the word we get Gnosticism from, is a knowledge. And this, he takes the word for knowledge and he puts a preposition before it. He combines these two. And it's like an intensive knowledge that Paul is praying for. This isn't just a cursory knowledge, a surface knowledge, but it's a precise and full knowledge of what God's will is. And then he says, I want you to have this full, abounding, round knowledge of God's will, and I want you to be filled with it. I want you to be filled. The idea if you had a glass of water, and you are adding drops to the glass of water, and you look at from the side, this glass of water starts to brim over, and the, the, the mass of water that is being added to it is just about to pour over. And it gets to the point to where if you added one single drop to this cup, that tension, that surface tension of the water would release and it would overflow over the sides of the cup. That is plerao. That is filled to the absolute brim. There is no room for anything further to be added. 
Paul's asking that they would be completely filled with the full and round knowledge of the will of God. There was a danger of false philosophies that were threatening believers in Colossae, and we don't specifically know what this false philosophy and this false teaching was, but we can be certain that these Uh, We can't be certain what the teachers were teaching, but we know that what Paul's solution to the problem was, the cure that Paul was presenting to the believers at Colossae was a knowledge of God. To be convinced of the supremacy of Jesus Christ in and over all things. As Lewis Johnson said, the true antidote to heresy is always a deeper and richer knowledge of the truth concerning Jesus Christ. It says, I desire that you be filled with the knowledge of his will. And then he says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Wisdom first. This, this knowledge of, of God's will is to be girded by these two things, spiritual wisdom and understanding. Spiritual wisdom is putting knowledge into action. It's being able to apply biblical knowledge to your life. It's not just so that you may know the theoretical facts about who God is, so that you can know when someone says, uh, Mount Timna, that you would know exactly where that is. It's not so that if someone said the lineage of Christ, that you can recite every single member in that lineage. It is not to know the details of Scripture, but it is to know and understand how the truth of God's Word applies to life. That is spiritual wisdom. It is not a worldly wisdom. It is not what this world thinks is appropriate. And I think of Pilgrim's Progress and Christian on his way. He has just ex- uh, exited the slow of despondence. And he is confronted with a man whose appropriate name is Worldly Wise Man. And Worldly Wise Man comes up to Christian and says, I have great news for you. There's an easier path that you could take. This easier path makes so much more sense. It is so much more immediately fulfilling. It's more comfortable. It demands less of you. It's easier. Just go this way, and you will find someone who will be able to direct you further on to that way. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you understand that he takes that direction, only to find that it was destructive, and that it led him away from the way in which he was to be walking to the celestial city. But it sounded good. Worldly wise man sounded right. He looked right. He was well-dressed. He had the look of a professional. He had the look of someone who was intelligent, who should be listened to, who knew what they were talking about, who seemed to have life experience that we could listen to. But he lacked spiritual wisdom. Biblical wisdom. He only had worldly wisdom. Paul here is saying, I desire for you to be filled with knowledge in all spiritual wisdom, nothing that the world has to offer. And it is secondly to be girded by understanding, the ability to not only know the Word of God, but to understand it. 
so that when you speak about doctrine, you are not just speaking in the technical terms of what is doctrinally right, but you understand the implications that that bears upon your life. So that when you know the will of God and you're able to explain something about the nature of God, you understand the full round implications of that and the demands it makes for us. It again is not so that you can sound wicked smart to your friends, to your peers, to your elders, to the people under you. It is not so that you can quickly explain the different attributes of God, point to a verse and text, but that you are able to say, it demands my life and my confidence. You could have the most clever and ingenious tool. I live, I, I worked at, I, sometimes it feels like I lived at Lowe's. I worked at Lowe's and I oversaw the tool department. And one of the, the perks of the tool department is you get to see all the doohickeys that come in, right? And I would be the first to tell you I was completely unqualified to work there. <laughs> Anyone who knew me would understand that. It would be find great humor in the fact that I was overseeing building material and tool section. I had no idea. I, I learned a theoretical knowledge about all of those things, but I lacked an experiential knowledge about many of those things. And these tools would come in and I would have absolutely no idea how to use them. If it was put in my hands, I would be an utter failure on how to use it. But you put it in a professional's hand like Joe, and Joe would know exactly how to use that tool. I would have no idea. I had lack of actual understanding of how to use that tool. But when we are presented with the knowledge of the will of God, Paul is saying, I, my prayer is that you abound in all wisdom, knowing how to apply it, and all understanding, know how powerful it is. It's demands upon your heart and your soul. Why did Paul desire for these believers to grow in their understanding of the Lord? For Paul, true biblical wisdom and understanding never ends with the mind, but it works its way into a way of living. In this case, their growth in a knowledge of the Lord would lead them to walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. People often say that they're desperate to know what God's will is. People, you will run into people and they say, I just want to know what God's will for my life is. I just want to know God's will in this situation. The answer to that is simple. God's will is simply your obedience. That is God's will for your life. That is God's will for you in whatever situation you are in. God's will is your submission, your obedience, your worship, your faithfulness. That is God's will. Paul's prayer is that they are so filled with the knowledge of his will because that is what is necessary to fulfill the second part of Paul's request. The second request of Paul is fed by the first request of Paul. Paul says, I want you to grow in a knowledge of the will of the Lord so that, verse 10, 
so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. You must accomplish the first before you can move on to the second. You cannot be fully pleasing to the Lord. You cannot walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord if you are lacking in the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. True knowledge will then always lead to a changed life. Paul says that he desires for them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This is simply a word picture to describe the ongoing pattern of your life. The way that you live, the way that you speak, the way that you think. Theology ought to always lead to doxology. Otherwise, it is simply idolatry. That means that your understanding of who God is ought to always lead and overflow into a way of worship before the Lord. Otherwise, you have just created another idol to worship. And this theoretical God that you have built up in your mind. But what is this thing that Paul talks about, this way in which we are able to be worthy of the Lord? We understand that we have already been declared righteous by God. Positionally, we are holy before Him, meaning that He declares you righteous. It is God who is making the declaration, not that you are righteous in and of yourself. You certainly are not. But the one who is above, who is righteous, is making the declaration upon your heart saying, you are righteous. I see you as righteous because the divine exchange occurred at the cross where Christ's righteousness was taken and put into our account because our sin was taken and put onto Christ. Because of that, we are positionally secure and righteous in God. We are declared righteous. That is what it means to be justified, to be declared righteous by God. If I declared you righteous, it wouldn't mean anything. But if the God who is righteous is the one who is making the declaration, you have full confidence that God sees you as righteous. This is not the cause of our salvation, but it is the result of our salvation. This means having the weight of another seeing, something that is of like value and weight. So when we are walking in a way that is worthy of the Lord, this idea of something that is worthy means that it has like value, similar weight, similar characteristics. Paul is calling believers to live lives that match that of the Lord. That's why it's so important to understand who Christ is. So important for us to study the Gospels. Because that is the pattern to which we are to follow. Our behavior ought to be worthy, ought to be a match for that. Expositor's commentary says, Doctrines and ethics are for Paul inseparable. Right conduct must be founded on right thinking, but right thinking must also lead to right conduct. This call to live a life of the worthy, that is worthy of the Lord is something that is common for Paul. We read in 2 Thessalonians, the end of chapter 1 this morning, 
about being declared to be worthy of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I'm just going to read through some of these verses. You don't have to turn there, but Ephesians 4, 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Philippians 1, 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2, 12. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, possibly written by Paul, we do not know. But speaking of those who lived their lives in faith, it is said, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. We know that God is the one who makes us worthy. As Paul says in verse 11 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. So when Paul is praying that this knowledge would lead us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, we must remember that it is God who has first made us worthy of him. Later in this passage, we see in the end of the passage that we have been qualified to share in his inheritance of the saints in verse 12. Again, the work is being done outside of us on our behalf. Our desire ought to be that we ought to be fully pleasing to him. This is the idea. Think of a servant. Think of a servant whose only desire is to serve their master in every way that they desire to be served before they even ask for it. You've probably seen shows or movies where there's a servant who is waiting upon their master and they don't even, the master gets to, it gets to the point where the master doesn't even have to ask. But the servant is waiting there saying, this is what you want next. This is what you want next. This is where you want to go. It is that same idea here. Where we are so instinctively familiar with what God's desire is for our life. That our singular hope and desire, our singular focus is to do exactly what God would want us to do in that moment. That we would be fully pleasing to him because we can anticipate what the master's will is in every circumstance. Now, Paul is going to list four ways of one who walks worthy of the Lord. We're going to look at these four ways of one who walks worthy of the Lord. How how do we do this? How do we live this out? Paul gives us some examples now. How do we live in a way that is worthy of the Lord? What is God looking for? How how can this be borne out in our lives? As we approach how we are to live in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, let let me remind us that this is what Paul's prayer for the believers in Colossae is. His desire is that they flourish in the areas of God's glory but they also serve as instructive for us on how we ought to gauge the effectiveness in which we are living in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. This is instructive for how we ought to pray for other believers, but it should also be instructive for us to look at our own lives, engage, measure, analyze, how am I in this area? Am I walking in a way that is worthy of the Lord? So it has a dual function as we work through this. 
First, we think, we should think, first and foremost, how does this apply to us? How are we living this out? And secondly, this should inform the way that we pray for one another. That this is how we desire for others to grow in their faith and in their understanding. So the first way in which one walks worthy of the Lord is that they're bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit. Bearing fruit in every good work. This is a present active participle. These, these four ways are all, all participles, which means grammatically that they're all adjective, adjectively describing the action that preceded it. But this is a present active one. It means it's an ongoing, continuous action pattern of life in the, per, in the life of the person, in the life of the believer. This is the standard mode of operation. You are ongoingly, continually, presently bearing fruit. It is not a seasonal habit. It is a daily, an hourly, every moment, every minute, bearing fruit in your life. Now these are the good works that come out of our hearts of faith. James chapter 2, you're probably familiar with. James says, show me your faith from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James says they're inseparable. You cannot have faith apart from works. That James says, my faith is shown out through my works. If we are abiding in the vine of Christ, then we will produce fruit that is consistent with the vine in which we abide. It is a simple thought. And remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 tells us that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we may walk in them. We understand that this is something that God has accomplished before time, before you were redeemed. God prepared your good works beforehand so that you may walk in them. Now this is not simply just excelling in one area of your life. It is not having an A plus in one fruit while the rest of them are shriveling on the vine. It is not enough to boldly serve the Lord in one area of your life while your heart remains unchecked in another. We are called to produce fruit, to be bearing fruit in every good work. It would certainly be curious to find a tree that produces all kinds of fruit. Imagine. Imagine you're walking through the woods and you come upon a tree and there is an apple and there is an orange and there is a pear and there is a kumquat and a kiwi and there is a pineapple and there is a banana. That would be a wonderful tree. That would be an odd sight. But it is equally unusual to find a believer who only produces one kind of fruit. When Paul presents the, spirit, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, he is not presenting to us a buffet in which we are able to pick and to choose which fruit we are going to enjoy and produce. He is laying out fruit of the Spirit 
saying, this is what is ought to be displayed in your life. This is what you are to be abounding in and producing. Not picking and choosing from and saying, I am going to excel in this area and I will be content with a modest outcome in this area. When you pray for fellow believers, pray that they would abound in bearing fruit in whatever situation God has placed them in. Even in the darkest days, in the deepest valleys, fruit should still be abounding. Remember that fruit grows in the valleys, not on the mountaintops. So the first way in which we are to walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord is that we are bearing fruit. The second is that we are increasing in a knowledge of God. Increasing in a knowledge of God. Paul says, continuing on in verse 10, he says, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in this knowledge of God. This knowledge is the same word that we covered before. It's the same word, epigenosko, that full, rounded, complete knowledge of who God is. And it is interesting here how Paul begins his prayer by saying, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will so that you can walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord. And one of the ways in which we walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord is growing in a knowledge of the Lord. Do you notice the cyclical pattern of thought there? The knowledge of the Lord leads to living in a way that is worthy of the Lord. And one of the ways that we live in a way that is worthy of the Lord is we grow in a knowledge of the Lord, which then in turn leads to you living in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, which then in turn leads to growing in a knowledge of the Lord, which then in turn leads to you living in a way that is manner in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. You see the repetition. Rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat over and over and over and over again. This is a cyclical pattern that we ought to be in the middle of. We never come to an end of. The heart produces, the heart that grows in a knowledge of God produces a greater desire to know Him, which then in turn leads to a greater desire to live for Him, which then leads to a greater desire to know Him. Knowing God leads to loving God. Loving God leads to knowing God. It is a never-ending cycle of biblically informed and fueled sanctification that God has us on. If you take this knowledge of God away, so too will a lasting desire for righteousness. There will be no ongoing desire to please the Lord if there is an absent desire to know the Lord. If you find yourself drawn by the flesh, easily swayed into temptation, giving in to sin, I would say the first thing you must do is know God. Set your affections on God. Seek to know the Lord, to grow in an abounding, full, round knowledge of the Lord. 
And when we pray for one another, we pray that we would be increasing in a knowledge of God that informs our desires to live for Him and to seek His glory in all things and at all times, because that is always God's will for our life. What is the third way in which we must walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord? The third way is that we are being strengthened with all power. Strengthened with all power. Verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. This is also a present participle, meaning it has that ongoing pattern of your life effect, but it is not active, it is passive, meaning that the action is being done to you. You are not the one who is responsible to do this. This is an ongoing action that is being accomplished in your life by an outside power. The word for strength and empower here, it's the same word in the Greek, just one is in the verbal form and one is in the noun form. So it literally is being powered with all power. What kind of power is Paul talking about here? The power to endure. The power to be patient. The power to be long-suffering. One commentator said, the characteristic of a man who is not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. That is the power that Paul is calling us to. This isn't a power to go on some great spiritual offensive and crusade in your life to perform great feats of miracles. It's not talking about handling snakes. It's not talking about casting out demons. It's not talking about going on a crusade for Christ. That's not the power that Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about the power to stand firm in the face of suffering, in the face of trial. It is the power to endure. The good news is that this power comes from God, and it is not your responsibility to make yourself stronger. We understand the power that we need is an alien power. It is not a power that naturally resides within us. The potential for that power is not within us. It doesn't matter how often you lift these weights. You will not get these muscles on your own. They are given to you from the outside because it comes from God's power. Growing in a knowledge of His will informs the way that we endure. It is when we know God, it is then that we know that we can trust God. Again, remember, Paul's desire is that we grow in a knowledge of His will so as to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. Unless we know what the will of God is, we do not understand the power that we have to be strengthened with. It's, it's just a theoretical power. There's no first-hand knowledge of it. It's just empty. We 
Growing in a knowledge of his will informs the way that we endure. When we know God, we know we can trust him. We know his goodness, his trustworthiness, his sovereignty, his omniscience, his graciousness, his holiness. It is then we trust him through all of life's trials and difficulties. So we are strengthened with all power for all endurance and patience. Endurance is the stand in grace under the weight of a trial. And patience is being long-suffering in the face of difficulty and opposition. It is being firmly planted so that nothing can blow you over. And it is according to his glorious might. How are we strengthened to endure? Simply according to his might. Now, this is one of my favorite illustrations. If you've sat in on Bible study, you've, you've no doubt heard this before. But imagine you are panhandling. You're sitting outside of, a, say, a fast food restaurant, and you have a little cup and a little sign, and you're panhandling. And Joe Schmo walks by and flips a quarter into your cup, and you say, thank you for that quarter. It will help me purchase what is probably now one one-hundredth of a Big Mac. But you are thankful, nonetheless, for that person's sacrifice in giving you that money. And then, right behind this person walks Elon Musk. And Elon Musk reaches into his pocket, takes out a quarter, and flips it into your cup. How do you feel about Elon Musk giving you a quarter? For those that are unaware, Elon Musk is one of the wealthiest men in the history of humanity. If Elon Musk came and flipped a quarter into your cup, you would say that he has given to you out of his wealth and not according to his wealth. If Elon Musk were to give you money that was according to his wealth, you would leave with the franchise of the McDonald's in which you were panhandling in front of. So when God says that he is strengthening us with all power according to his glorious might. God is telling us he is not giving us power out of his might, but in accordance to his might. Does anyone here want to put a limit upon the power of God? Therefore, there is no limit upon the power of God that is available for you for all endurance and all long-suffering. There is no limit for God's glorious might. Therefore, there is no limit for our endurance and for our patience. The power available to us is not measured by the need. Rather, it is measured by the supply. You can be assured that you have more power available to you through God than you will ever need. And there will never be a supply shortage. There will never be an outage. There will never be a rolling blackout for those that have ever lived in California. There will never be a short of the supply, a break in the supply chain. It will always be there it will always be abounding, and it will always be enough. When we pray for one another, pray that God's power 
would overcome our weakness. Pray that we would understand that God's grace is sufficient for us because God's power is made perfect in our weakness, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He is then able to say, therefore, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That is what we pray for one another for. What is the fourth way in which we are to walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord? The fourth way in which we can pray for one another in this endeavor it is that we would with joy give thanks to the Father. It is a heart that overflows with a joyful thankfulness to the Lord. Now your translation, depending on what translation you have, may put joy with the previous phrase. Your translation may say that uh, for all endurance and patience with joy. Now, I believe in the Greek that it is more aligned with the following phrase than with the previous one. So that he is saying, with joy, giving thanks to the Father. That our thankfulness is to be characterized by a spirit of joy. True heart of thankfulness comes from the understanding that God takes what is utterly unworthy and redeems it through the blood of Christ. Thus is the only reality that matters. The only reality that matters is that your sins are forgiven through the blood of Christ. He, it is He who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. The fact that He has qualified us, this means that He has made us sufficient, not deserving. It implies that we are unqualified without the ability to qualify ourselves. The unqualified cannot declare themselves to be qualified. We can only be qualified by the one who is inherently in himself qualified. It implies that there is a standard that we fall short of. It implies the fact that we are sinful and that we need God to reach in and declare us to be qualified. To share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now there should be a definite article there before light in your Bible. You can write in the little margin there, the light. It is a definite article. It is a definite thing that we are to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. This is a secure thing in heaven for us. And it is contrasted with, in, later on where he says darkness, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Again, there's an article, the darkness. Contrasting the light and the darkness. First Peter 1 Peter 1.4 Peter says, we have an inheritance imperishable, undefiled and unfading, keeping kept in heaven for you. 
not only are we saved from the consequences of our sin through the death and sacrifice of Christ, but we are promised an inheritance, an eternal reward. He has delivered us from the domain of the darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We are able to share in the inheritance of the saints because we have had citizenship granted to us, transferred to our account. We have gone from being children of wrath, condemned from all all eternity, to now enjoying Christ forever. And I know that I have said this many times, but God is so good to not only save us from our condemnation, condemnation, which we so richly deserve, but he goes beyond saving us from this condemnation to restoring us from not just a position of neutrality, but then giving us citizenship into Christ's kingdom and an eternal inheritance with him. It's more than the fact that you've been forgiven of your sin. You've been given eternal life. You have not been restored to a position of neutrality before God. You are now a child of God, granted an inheritance secure in heaven for which we are eternally and joyfully thankful. We abide, we are secure in this kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, which is the forgiveness of our sins. We enjoy this access to the kingdom because we were bought out of the slave market of our sin that we loved, that we served, that we enjoyed, that we reveled in. We have been bought out of this slave market by the blood of Christ. We are to pray for one another to be overflowing with a joyful gratitude for what God has done through us, through His Son. We can sometimes find it difficult, particularly in times of difficulty, to be thankful for, the, for trials. Paul tells us that we ought to always be overflowing with thankfulness on account of what Christ has done and accomplished on our behalf and what cannot be undone by any trial or tribulation. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. So Paul says, I have two prayer requests for you believers in Colossae, that you may grow in the knowledge of His will and that you may walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. And how do we walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord? Paul says, by bearing fruit, by increasing in knowledge, by being strengthened with His glorious might, and by being joyfully thankful to the Lord for the redemption from our sins. That is how we walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord. And that is how we pray for one another. Now, God is so good. And you can be sure that if you are teaching something, that God is going to provide for you an opportunity to apply this and live it out in your life. The last couple of days, some of the men and our sons were away at a father's son retreat up at Camp Maranatha in New Durham. And after the first session on Friday night, many of the fathers, the sons are running around having a blast, getting hyped up on chocolate and marshmallows. 
and the fathers are standing around some campfires, and we're catching up with each other. We see each other once or twice a year for the past how many years we've been going, um, and we catch up with one another. And this year, it didn't take long to learn of many of the difficulties that God is bringing many of these men through. One father told us of his two-year-old daughter that was recently diagnosed with leukemia. Pray for the Daly family. John Daly is his name. His daughter's name is Grace. They're walking through the pain. He came directly from the hospital in Boston and drove up with his sons for father-son retreat while his wife was in the hospital with their daughter preparing for a bone marrow transplant from their 14-year-old daughter. After this, another father told Mike, was talking with him, that just over a year ago, his 18-year-old son committed suicide. And they were still dealing with the pain and the grief that comes alongside of that. As we prayed for one another that night, Paul's words sparked in my mind and they were ringing in my ears. Lord, Grow these men in the knowledge of your will. Help them to walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord. Earlier this week, I received a phone call from my sister. that her cancer is returned. And it isn't wrong to pray that it wouldn't be cancer, that she would be cured a second time. But it is clear that sometimes God's cancer to end someone's life at an earlier age than would normally be expected. How do we pray in these situations? When you're on the phone with your sister who is leveling the information that her life is about to come to an end and she's going to leave behind her 17-year-old son and her 4-year-old daughter, how do you pray? When she asks you, please pray with me on the phone, how do you pray for a believer in times like that? I prayed that she would be fruitful in these dark days. I prayed that she would be increasing in the knowledge of the Lord. I prayed that she would be strengthened according to the power of God. With all power to endure and to be patient. And I prayed that she would be abounding in thankfulness for what God has accomplished in her life through the cross. Later on, when she had more information to respond to, I asked if it would be okay if I could share what she was going through with my church family. She said yes. And she said, you can send a prayer request out to FBC. They are prayers. May we seek to pray like Paul 
pray like Paul prayed for the believers who were enduring and persevering through life. Pray that we may help one another to live lives that are worthy of the Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you that you have given us instructions. I thank you that you have given us grace to overcome our weaknesses. Lord, that your power may be made perfect, may be made clear through our lives. Lord, I pray that we would not be casual about the responsibility that we have to pray for one another. That we would be abounding in the knowledge of the Lord. That we may walk in a manner that is worthy of Him. That we may pray for one another, that we would be constantly bearing fruit, growing in the knowledge of the Lord, being strengthened with all power, with all of your power, and have an attitude of joyful thankfulness for the security of our salvation through Jesus Christ. Lord, now as we approach your table, we bring joy. We bring confidence. Because we know and understand that you are seated at the right hand of God. That your work of redemption is done. Our security of salvation in you is complete. And we understand that you are now interceding for us. All because of the work that you accomplished at the cross. Praise your name.